Welcome to episode number five of the Science of Hitting podcast. Uh, start by saying a quick thank you to Andrew Walker, who came on the podcast a few days ago to talk about Charter and Comcast. I really enjoyed the conversation we had, and I look forward to talking with him again soon. Uh, today's guest, guest is Francisco Oliveira. He's returning after making an appearance on the inaugural episode of the podcast when we talked about Disney. And today we're going to provide an update on Disney following the release of the company's third quarter financial results. So with that, welcome back, Francisco. Hey, nice to be back so quickly. I've loved all the episodes, so it's been a great launch of your pod. Good. I'm glad you've been listening. Somebody's been listening to him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just to provide a little bit of background first, you know, it was a pretty messy quarter. Uh, I know you and I were both excited that we're finally going to have a quarter where 21st Century Fox assets were going to be fully reflected in both periods, which would have made the results a lot cleaner. Uh, unfortunately, we got sideswiped by a pandemic. So you know, as a result, every segment was impacted to a certain degree, mostly negatively, but some positively. Uh, management put some numbers on it. They estimated that it was about a $3 billion hit to EBIT for the entire company with about three and a half of that at parks experience and products, obviously theme parks and movie theaters uh, with a slight offset of about half a billion dollars elsewhere, most notably deferral of sports rights costs and media networks. Uh, looking beyond the p and I think the most encouraging development was obviously the company's continued success in direct-to-consumer D2C. Disney Plus now has more than 60 million paid subs around the world more than doubled since the start of the calendar year. And uh, we actually saw pretty good growth in uh, Hulu as fought as well, added about 3.3 million subs in the quarter compared to 1.6 million last quarter. So I thought that was an interesting number. But anyways, so what were were your high-level takeaways from the quarter? What stood out to you? You know, I think I put it in three buckets, negative, positives, and kind of, you know, bizarre funny analyst uh commentary i think in the negative it's like you said i mean um so many parts of the business have been effectively shut down you know park you know many of the line items in the parks are down 95 percent plus theaters are closed so studio you know hasn't seen as, as much ticket sales and it was the, the the last quarter last year was avengers endgame the highest grossing uh, box office this movie of all time. So huge, you know, you know, huge downdraft comparably. And then, you know, sports have been shut down as well. So during the quarter. On, on the positive side, I think, you know, like you said, $3 billion impact due to COVID, but somehow free cash flow is positive. They were able to defer a lot of costs like sports costs and other content expenses. But, you know, basically your biggest physical asset, most capital-intensive asset is not generating revenue and, and you still generate positive cash flow. It's an encouraging sign um, right. to see in resiliency of the business. They have a lot of liquidity as well. I think it's a positive. And, and But I think the most, you know, the overarching theme of the call was their aggression in, in streaming, growth of Disney+, Plus, um, their their new strategy per se, maybe one-off, maybe not, with having a premium video on demand via Disney+, Plus with, with the movie Mulan. They're expanding streaming with a general inter- entertainment uh, offering with using the star brand. 
ESPN Plus is still growing, and they're going to do an Investor Day, which I think they've had a positive impact with Investor Days in the past. So they're they're going to do Investor Day to discuss, you know, their their strategy with streaming going forward, which I think it's done really well. I think in the Bizarre Analyst camp, just to, just for fun, I would add. An analyst actually basically implied whether not implied, but basically asked, "Hey, do you guys have too much cash on the balance sheet?" Which I think was pretty interesting, <laughs> given given what the business is going through. You know, Disneyland is not even open yet. Uh, Hong Kong, Disneyland had to shut down again. Orlando, um, which is in the negative camp here in terms of results. Orlando is not seeing the the demand that they thought they would be seeing at this point. Uh, probably because of cases in Florida have been going up. But just an analyst asking whether you have too much cash was just kind of like a little bit mind-boggling to me. I don't think you can have enough cash in this environment. And another bizarre take was an analyst basically asking, like, when are you going to reinstate the dividend, which they had cut, would basically had stopped paying a dividend in order to preserve liquidity. And I think it's not even, you know, given so many parts of their business are shut down and so many parts of their business need investment to grow, such as Disney Plus, I don't think a dividend is even important right now. So those two bizarre takes on the cash and the dividend were pretty funny. Uh, ones I would wanted to call out. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I was floored when I heard the, the <laughs> dividend. I can't believe anybody's actually thinking about that right now, to be honest. And like yourself, that's, that's the least of my concerns right now. I mean, they have what appears to be a massive opportunity in front of them. I think they should be focused on making sure they get the most out of the opportunity. On top of that, as you noted, their parks aren't even open or they're barely open, the ones that are open. So they have some core business issues to worry about and worrying about returning capital to shareholders should not be on the plate right now, in my opinion. 100%. Um, so let's dig into D to C a little bit more. Let's put some numbers on it, too. So Disney had their investor day in April of last year. They gave targets for Disney Plus. They said 60 to 90 million subs by 2024. They said ESPN Plus 8 to 12 million subs by 24, and that's a U.S. business. And then they said, what they say for Hulu? Who just told me a minute ago? I think it was 40 to 60 million. 40 to 60 million. Okay. So, and I, and I looked back at Goldman's note from after that event. So when the pricing was already revealed, you know, they came out at a pretty low price point. So they, they upped their numbers a little bit. Then Goldman went to 68 million by 2024. So here we are in third quarter of 2020 already hit the low end of guidance on Disney plus already hit the low end of guidance on ESPN plus. And, you know, after a strong quarter at Hulu, we could hit the low end of that guidance, you know, within the next year, call it, if things go well. At the same time, you know, Disney made the deal for Hamilton, which was certainly not what people were expecting. Uh, they released Black is King, which is also, you know, a little bit different than kind of what the core Disney brand was or what people, you know, perceive it as, the brands that they laid out at the launch. And then they also announced this deal with Mulan, which, you know, they pushed it back a couple times. They've now decided that on September 4th, people with Disney Plus can watch it if they're willing to pay $29.99. So maybe let's start with that one. What do you think about the Mulan decision? Do you think it's a smart 
test? Do you think it's the direction they're going to go? What, what do you think about it? I think the the Mulan decision. I think it's had a lot of debate um, amongst analysts and, and investors, but I think it's it's truly a smart move. Um, we don't know. So Mulan's a movie that you would expect, call it in the range of seven hundred million to maybe a billion in box office revenues, and just you know divide that by you know maybe nine eight bucks in tickets. It's it's a lot of you know it's millions of people going to theaters, packing theaters uh, day after day, especially on the weekends. So for what it's worth, not to cut you off, but for what it's worth, I just pulled it up. The ninety-eight Mulan worldwide gross was three hundred and five million. Okay, it was probably going to do. I think projections were, you know, for the opening weekend, maybe above eighty million. So I think I, I think it was going to, and the international box office wasn't as developed in, at the time, and so sure. I think it was yeah, going to do twenty-two years ago. So call it maybe double that, um, in a, in a conservative basis. And so you're talking about millions of people packing in in theaters. And it's really uncertain whether, you know, you can, if that's viable, you know, maybe within the year. So I think this is a good strategy as a bridge in between getting to there, preserving the, the premium nature of this film. It's probably cost around $200 million. Um, You can divert marketing dollars from that film to actually Disney Plus because if you're marketing that film, you're marketing Disney Plus now because it's going to go in a premium window. And probably can drive new subscribers. So I, I you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great move by Disney, and you know, it'll it'll probably, it's not, in the end of the day, it's not going to generate as much profit as if it were a, you know, a billion dollar movie. But it can raise the profile of Disney Plus and generate a lot of cash flow. So if let's say you know they have. Over sixty million subscribers now on Disney Plus. You know, if, you know if, they, if if you get you know ten million of those to pay for Mulan, and you know maybe in that ten million you include a portion of being new subscribers. So mm-hmm. you know you get obviously thirty million there. That's you're recovering your costs. You're making some profit, and they're gonna launch in theaters in in markets where COVID is is not you know, as bad or where Disney Plus is not available. So in they're going to re- still release in China, which the movie should do well in China. So I, I think it's a good hybrid. Um, it'll drive Disney Plus subs. It'll, you know, it, it'll recover the cost of the movie, which is a very high-quality movie. It'll generate excitement. So I, I think it's a great move by by Disney. And I think I, the, the one thing I would add, let's say this this, this generates – way more than 10 million uh, subscribers that actually pay for the film via Disney Plus. So you have to subscribe to Disney Plus and then pay $30. Let's say, you know, this blows back expectations, like blows it out of the water. Um, then you could, you could see, you, you can basically think that they might do the same thing with Black Widow which is a film that it's totally different, you know, audience, general audience, big audience, but, you know, they have, the Marvel films have a, a big fan base and they might do with, with the upcoming Pixar films. So I, I think it's a great experiment. I think it's a great opportunity. So wait, keeping, you know, continue to, to delay the movie 
probably not the best strategy, and then you're going to release it. People don't want to go to theaters. It's not going to do well in the box office. It's going to get bad headlines. Hey, Mulan was released in September. Nobody went. You know, probably not the best thing. They're going to have they're going to have a lot of movies in the pipeline, anyways, for 2021 or 2022. So pipeline having inventory to to put in theaters is not going to be the issue. But if this works out well, it just you know opens the door for many opportunities and can create a lot of growth for for Disney Plus. How about you? What do you think about the move? Yeah, I mean, I I generally agree. You know, we Comcast, NBC, you just did this with Trolls. Last I saw, they had about six million buys for their PVOD distribution of that. Um, you know, generally speaking, Disney is has a relationship with MVPDs as they're going forward and as they think about their relationship with the bundle. And they also have a relationship with theaters as they think about releasing movies either through that channel or going direct to consumer. So, you know, given the circumstances, I think it makes sense to do a test and try to learn from it as Chapek said on the call. And, you know, that's one of the things at Disney that I've been probably most happy with in the last couple of years is they've for the most part, not done anything that was too drastic. They didn't blow up their legacy businesses just cause I think they've taken calculated, um, and, you know, somewhat slow decisions in some way. Now you could say that they're lucky to a certain extent that they can do that because they have such good IP and there's probably some truth to that, but I continue to think that just blowing up the box office business to throw everything on Disney plus is probably not the smartest idea right now, at least financially. And I think they can, they can continue to capitalize upon that window while still, um, you know, supporting Disney plus long-term essentially with that content and in later pay windows. So I like this test. I don't think it would be smart financially to start giving movies like this away on Disney Plus and making customers think that's, you know, normal. So, yeah, broadly broadly speaking, I, I think it's a smart idea. Agreed. Agreed. And so let's look at uh, let's look at a business that is is not doing as well. I mean, it, ESPN benefited from the cost of Frozen Sports rights as we mentioned a second ago, but in the quarter, you know, affiliate fees were up low single digits. 7% increase in rates, which is in line with what they've done historically, but a 4% decline in subs. And that 4% decline would have been six if you adjust for the positive impact from the launch of the ACC network last August. So said differently, we're at a point now where the high single digit rate increases that Disney's negotiated for its slate of channels is largely being offset by subscriber declines. You know, and this naturally led to some discussion on the call about the future of ESPN, including the potential to take it D to C. Uh, how do you how do you feel about the current state of ESPN, and where do you, where do you think it'll be in five years? I th- I think ESPN is pretty at a pretty interesting state because they have probably the best mix of sports rights in 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 the United States. They have ESPN Plus, which is growing strongly, like you mentioned over 800 million subscribers, which is pretty impressive when you compare it to other streaming services. Um, yes, sports has been shut down, 
and and the bundle is a headwind given the subscriber declines that you mentioned. But the people who are really sticking to the bundle are valuing sports as the main thing, the main reason why they are subscribing to the bundle. So, and if, if sports and live events is the main reason why you're subscribing to the bundle, ESPN has the most provides the most value to that. So, in terms, if you if you had a channel that was you know dependent on affiliate revenues and advertisements and what's basically entertainment programming that competes with with Netflix, Disney Plus, frankly, I think you're in a world of pain because nobody's going to... People today aren't tuning into a show at 8.30 p.m. or 9 p.m. on a you know Monday. It, it, very few shows get that kind of attention. Um, it's too much competition. But an NBA, an important, you know, Lakers versus the Clippers to launch the NBA bubble or if they play again in the playoffs or an, an important golf match or an important MLB game during the, the pandemic or the NFL, obviously the, the gorilla in the room. Um, that, that's invaluable. And I think that will keep extracting value from the bundle and, pre- and preserving viewership and dollars so i can i think in that sense espn is well positioned they have an app with with a big install base month and a big base of monthly active users that's also helping drive espn plus and they'll probably be well positioned to to go direct to consumer which is one of the things they hasn't gotten as much coverage we talked about it after the earnings call but it, it it seems like there are big plans to take ESPN more and more direct to consumer, which might be part of the investor presentation coming later this year. So I, I think ESPN has challenges, um, but they also have a lot of opportunities. Um, and they ESPN Plus has grown on the back of UFC, a sport that I don't think was ever on ESPN before. So imagine what they can do if they have an even closer relationship with the NBA, an even closer relationship with the NFL, which there, was, there were reports this week that they actually want a better package with the NFL, uh, potentially more games, more high-quality games. They also want to be part of the Super Bowl rotation, which they aren't currently with ABC. So they're in a position to, given the budget they have, the position in the bundle, their their install base of consumers on on in the app, and directly with ESPN Plus, to to have the biggest budget for the best events, and and to leverage the relationship that they have directly to consumers, and to make it a, an even more important relationship directly to consumers. So again. Uh, they have challenges, but they have huge opportunities. It's it's all about how they execute going forward, and I, you know, I I feel good about where they are, and it'll be interesting to see what they say um, in the coming months about their opportunities. Yeah, I I, I agree with a lot of that. I, I think I think the conversation about ESPN is often. It's, it's not thought about fully, in my opinion. 
And I, th- I think it overlooks a lot of things. You know, for one, as you noted, ESPN has by far the highest uh, per sub affiliate rates. And they by, have by far the largest budget to go out and spend next year, the year after, whatever. So that's that's one important point. Two, you know, as, as I noted on our last podcast, sports are very different than an episode of the, the Big Bang Theory or whatever that you previously sat down and watched at a specific time, eight minutes of commercials during a 30-minute episode. Going to Netflix or HBO Max for that product is a much better experience for the consumer. That doesn't apply to sports as far as I can see. So we're almost talking about it in some ways. Are sports going to become less relevant to the American consumer? Which maybe they will as more entertainment options become more accessible and they're better. So maybe that's what can happen. But in terms of ESPN's position, especially relative to its peers, I continue to think they're very well positioned. And I also think for reasons that you could probably speak to better than I can, the leagues are really not in a position, you know, NFL has a channel. <laughs> they can, if they really wanted to, they could just put all their games on their channel or go D to C or whatever. You know, for, there's a reason they don't do that. And I don't think that's going to change. So as I think about where ESPN can go down the road from here, they start with very good relationships. They start with large budgets. They provide distribution and reach you know they keep real fans interested in the sports with you know their shoulder programming around live events and you look at what they're doing with espn plus and i think they're starting to move in a direction where they're using their current strength to maybe find a way forward if sports are distributed another in another way than you know the current linear pay tv bundle um, as I think, as, as you really start to think about what that means and what it means for someone like a Viacom CBS or a Fox, and you think about bidding for rights, you know, look, think about the UFC, for example, they're now part of a package that has 8.5 million subscribers. And it sounds like they're getting pretty decent buys for their pay-per-view events. What's their plan from here if, if they don't get a deal with ESPN, do they go back to Fox? Is Fox even interested? You know, I think as you think about things like that, and I'm not saying it's totally leaning in Disney's favor, but I think a lot of those discussions would, you, you would, you would find out that ESPN is pretty well set on a relative basis. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but. No, I, th- I think, I think you made a great point. It makes me think, I mean, there's two ends of the spectrum, right? You got the NFL, the, the best of the best most viewership and then you got the niche leagues that in this environment like you said could they lose relevance right so if you think about the nfl from the best brand and the be- best dis- distribution and the best platform in sports in the united states espn they're going to be able to cut a, the biggest check for the nfl and the nfl would rather have a check than to actually invest, you know, we're talking about billions probably because you're going to have to forego revenue, build a distribution platform, get customers, market to acquire those customers. And you're going to completely destroy the league in terms of the, the 
profitability in terms of what athletes make, in terms of what the owners make and the franchise value. If you disrupt those revenues, especially at the, you know, the NFL level, at the niche level, it's so, you know, I, I don't use this lightly, but some of these leagues can are actually appreciative to be part of, of the ESPN platform, to be distributed by the ESPN and be shown by ESPN because they'll get more viewers. I mean, you know, I I own shares of Formula One, right? And they they were they used to be on the Speed Channel in the United States in races. I don't think that channel even exists anymore. Then they were an NBC Sports channel. Um, after that, the 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 deal with Speed Channel expired, they went to the NBC Sports platform, and NBC Sports the channel is is kind of niche you know it's it's not as well known it's not as broadly distributed um it's not as well marketed and the new owners of formula one once that deal expired they immediately went to espn and they actually told espn take our content for free just give us you know good attention right and Mm -hmm. and and obviously viewers just by Formula One shifting from NBC Sports to ESPN, viewers went up a lot. Um, right. And there's more attention on Formula One being a niche, because it's just niche sports in the U.S., but being in, on ESPN, promoted by ESPN, having ESPN F1 podcast and getting ESPN alerts when there's a race on the app, which has millions, it's most downloaded sports app in the United States. It's a huge benefit. So like you said, the, the, the more niche leagues actually probably want to be on ESPN and USC is on ESPN and, you know, they can't go direct to consumer now. You know, they have a deal with, with, uh, with ESPN, ESPN Plus. Like, yeah, I mean, MLS, MLS had a direct to consumer offering. They took it away to be on ESPN Plus and on ESPN. And I, I haven't seen the numbers, but the MLS's back tournament has been on ESPN the last few weeks. And, you know, that's, that's significant for the league to build interest and to, you know, have viewership and to have a secure deal with ESPN. That's meaningful. That's a great example because, because MLS is getting two things. They're probably getting way more viewership than they were getting in the prior um, direct to consumer platform that they had with. So getting more viewership via ESPN, but at the same time, they're, they're getting a check from ESPN and before they had to market it, pay for the content, you know, pay for the, uh, the tech, the distribution, acquiring customers, marketing, you know, now they just get a check from ESPN and they're getting more viewers most likely. So it's a, it's a huge competitive advantage. And and as another, you know, while we're talking MLS, it's still early days. So I don't, I don't want to overstate this, but YouTube had a deal with, I believe it was the LA galaxy. Um, for, you know, broadcasting their games. And I don't want to say it's going poorly, but you never really hear about it. And, you know, it reminds me of what Amazon's done with the NFL. It's There's certainly been plenty of noise about them initially getting involved. There just doesn't seem to be much follow-on in terms of going from there. And I, I don't know if the reticence comes from the tech company side, you know, the Amazons and the YouTubes of the world, 
if it comes from the league's side, and especially in terms of the NFL. And it might be both. I, I just don't think people are looking for something there that really isn't that great of a fit. Yeah, I think in, in a lot of ways. I think if I remember, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong because you might be more familiar with this. I think that LA uh, MLS soccer team deal, LA Galaxy, is it? Yeah, LA Galaxy. LA, I'm pretty sure it was the Galaxy. I think it was a regional deal. I'm not yeah. sure. So, so it's a regional deal with YouTube, right? Um, mm-hmm. YouTube TV, I think. Not even YouTube proper. Um, so think about the hurdles, you know, to get there. I don't know if to, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a service that is, has, doesn't really have scale, YouTube TV. And then you're going to a, a regional market. A subscale service trying to acquire regional customers. It's not probably not, not the best uh, recipe for a win-win. Um, right. So I think, I mean, if ESPN had that deal, it'll probably be, even if it were regional, probably, you know, the, uh, they could probably work, work around their programming schedule. It'll probably be a much bigger hit and promoted widely. Um, so I think, like you said, and, and like we've talked about, I think ESPN has many challenges but they also have many opportunities and as long as you believe that they can help niche sports and that big sports will still be a part of american culture and 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 i think as we've seen with with the with the lockdown and amidst the pandemic getting sports back have been a huge benefit so i think you know people still love sports and i think espn is the best at it it's kind of funny. I said a second ago that, you know, the, the tech offerings don't really do anything here. I actually don't think that's correct. They do provide value on the niche, niche sports, like you were just saying. And, you know, I, that'll be increasingly true if gambling becomes, sports gambling becomes more widespread throughout the United States. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just finish by saying on this point, because we don't need to talk, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this again in the future, but, you know, you can go look at someone like Fox, you can go look at their results and, you know, they're dealing with significant subscriber declines. So companies like that, that are not as broadly diversified as Disney, when they go into these next set of negotiations, maybe they say the NFL is a must have and we have to, we have to bid whatever we have to bid to keep it, but that will impact how they deal with other sports rights. So again, on a relative basis, I think ESPN remains very well positioned both for, where we are today and where we may be in five years or 10 years. Agreed. And, and just to add a, a slight comment to Fox, didn't they drop a big golf package in order to be, to, yeah. to have a little bit more flexibility on bidding for the NFL, right? They dropped a golf package and um, uh, AT&T time Warner had rights to the champions league uh, soccer. And they've also backed away from that deal. So I think you're also finding that, again, ESPN Plus is in a bundle and has a large number of subscribers. They're moving in the direction of having a real business model. Um, You know, AT&T, on the other hand, was throwing the product on uh, Bleacher Report Live and charging either by game or for a subscription. 
which, you know, apparently was not working particularly well. So, yeah, I think that's another good example. Agreed. Um, so with that, all right, let's move on to a different topic. Um, now, obviously, the commentary on, on the parks business was not encouraging. Um, for one, they reopened the park in Hong Kong in June, but they had to close it again in July due, due to a government order. And in addition, while the parks in Orlando are still open, it's clear they're seeing lackluster demand, particularly particularly whenever there's a concern about a, a surge in uh, COVID cases in, in Florida. So, you know, to me, much like I wrote about Comcast last week, I think we have a long way to go before the, tar- the parks get anywhere close to, you know, what they had in 2019 in terms of attendance, revenues, profitability, et cetera. Do you, do you basically agree with that? Yeah, I think the, you know, I would agree the parks have a long way to go. Um, they basically said, look, we were, we were preparing our opening plans. We were seeing booking um, numbers come, uh, come in well. Then COVID cases started ramping up again in Florida, and and the, the actual bookings um, were lower than expected. They did say, you know, per capita spending was was high because I I guess you're getting the super duper fans of Disney going to the parks right now, and they're spending a lot of money in in stores and stuff. Um, it's gonna be a long road until. I don't think the parks can really come back to normal until you have a vaccine, right? And until that vaccine is distributed and or herd immunity slash vaccine, um, and people are really safe to to, to be in a crowded place. But um, I don't know whether that's a one-year event, two-year event, three-year event. I don't think a four-year event. But... I think demand is going to be, and this might be non-consensus, you might agree with this or disagree, and others might as well, but I think demand will be incredibly high once it is safe to be packed with other people. Um, I can't imagine, like, people not wanting to go. It's it's almost a rite of passage in the United States uh, to go to Disney World or Disneyland and experience that uh, with young kids. And I think people have been in their houses and apartments and basically sheltering in place for since March. And, you know, say things are safe at the beginning of 2022. You've been sheltering in place since March 2020. I think in 2022, you're going to want to go to to the park in Orlando and have a good time. And I think the demand will be incredibly high. But the timing is super uncertain and the road uh, is going to be a long road, most likely, unless you get a super acceleration, some, some, some vaccine. I'm confident on the man, the man on the other side is a question of when we get there. And I think that, you know, I, frankly, I think investors are giving Disney the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's right. It's funny people say the market's short term, but I think the more you understand a lot of businesses and you you think about what's really happening, I think you find in a lot of cases the market actually does tend to be fairly long term in its analysis of things that are happening. I mean, obviously the business results here are very ugly right now, mostly as a result of theme parks and and studio. Um, you know, to the 
to kind of the last point you made, I think the data clearly shows that Disney's parks have dominated in terms of attendance for a long time. And they've also uh, shown real pricing power for decades. So to bet against that, in my mind, you know, the, the impetus is kind of on you to make the argument why that's going to change. And in my mind, it almost certainly continues to happen for the reason you said. I mean, it's an incredibly unique experience and unique experiences like that, you know, are, are priceless, essentially. And I think that's increasingly true in a world where, you know, younger people in general care, care more about experiences and traveling. And they also care about showing off to their friends on Instagram or wherever else. So they want to they want to show themselves with their, you know, three year old daughter at Disney World, and I, I don't see that changing. I think it's going to become even more, even more prevalent going forward. So I, I remain very confident in the long term value of the parks. Like yourself, I think it's a while till we get there, and you know whether that's a vaccine or people just becoming more comfortable with living with the virus essentially um i'm not sure but yeah i think it could take a little time yeah agreed and i mean disney says that orlando they're they're operating at a at a net positive or probably close to break even of, of net contribution um so sort of like a gross profit measure is what i would take and hmm. as long as they can do that um, it's not going to be and, and do it with every park, which they're not doing with every park currently because you know Disneyland is not even open. Um, they can kind of survive this phase. And I think, look, if you look back in April and March, there were actually real questions that I myself thought about the, you know, what's the viability of this business if if, if they have to have parks shut down. Uh, for an extended period, but they've did, you know, they've shown that you know, they can actually survive without the park, and and if you think the man's going to be there on the other end, I think they'll be able to thrive on the other end. They they if you, if you take operating expenses for the quarter, um, they knocked them down by one point six billion um, in the parks division, in the consumer and parks division. On top of that. They knocked down about three hundred million of SGNA expenses as well. So hmm. y y you're you're talking about you know basically slashing two billion in a quarter, and a two billion in a quarter when put yourself in April when things were really uncertain. The outlook was super uncertain. We don't know. We didn't really know. We didn't really know what we were dealing with in April or late late March, and to take that amount of costs out of the business um, is actually it, it's it's sad obviously because you have to furlough and, and fire a, a huge amount of people in terms of the company surviving it's, it's super encouraging um, because they can probably get more efficient in the current quarter that we are uh, currently and it, it can give investors comfort in, in that sense right no, I think that's, I think that's fair, you know, and, and importantly, Disney's in a position to, to weather the storm, regardless of how long it lasts, you know, they went out and I don't have it in front of me, but they raised, I think they said $11 billion in May. 
I think, I, yeah, eleven billion. I went and looked at the maturities and the and the rates they're paying on the debt. I mean, it's 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 just so cheap. Which thankfully they're you know in a position to do that, but they they have the flexibility to make it through. Even if this takes two years, three years, it's not going to be a problem in my eyes. Yeah. So they have twenty three. It's going to go. Exactly. I mean, they have $23 billion in cash, and over the next 18 months or so, I think it's less than $4 billion in maturities. Uh, they'll be, they'll, you know, I don't think bankruptcy or any, you know, catastrophic out, outcome like that is, is a big risk at this point, which a lot of people were, weren't thinking necessarily that way in, in March and in April. Right. Right. All right. Last one's going to be a fun one. I was going to ask you if you want them to pay a dividend in the back half of the year because I knew you didn't want them to, but we already <laughs> talked about that. So let's do, uh, let's do a fun Disney Plus one. They have 57 and a half, or they have 60 million subs right now. What they add in the quarter? Do you remember off the top of your head? I think it was 57 and a half at the end of the quarter, more or less. Uh, what they had the previous quarter. Do you remember? Was it 33? I think it was 33 around that, yeah. And eight of that was, or I think eight is the number. Eight of that was uh, the India, you know, they rolled in the hot star subs. So it's called, they went from, let's say they went from 41 to 60. In the back half, of the, or in these last couple of months, we have Mandalorian, the second season, and there's a couple other, uh, there's some Avengers shows coming out, right? Is that this year? Uh, well, we don't know because they were filming those shows in, in March and they all got shut down. So there's an expectation that maybe they can launch at the end of this, towards the end of this year, but we don't know. Um, okay, we, have, we at least have Mandalorian in October though, right? Yeah, Mandalorian in October is, is on. Okay, so what's your guess for Disney Plus subs at uh, end of fiscal 20? Three months. Three months. That's before Mandalorian, though. Where are we at now? August, September, October. From now, sorry. From from August 3rd, from the 60 million numbers. You have three months from there. So by the next call. Okay. So Okay, got it by the next call. So call it uh, early November, more or less. Yeah. Man, uh, honestly, I don't think the biggest driver is going to be like Mandalorian in the, in the United States. I think the biggest driver is going to be they're launching in, I think, Latin America, Indonesia, and mm. certain parts of Eastern Europe. So, you know, they they should have over 70 million uh, or, or, or close to 70 million, I would say. All right, I'm gonna take the over. If you're saying seventy, I'm taking the over. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I actually, right, well, actually had a fun question for you. Let's hear it. How many, how many uh, subscribers to Disney Plus are gonna pay for the Mulan premium video on demand offering for thirty bucks? You know, I was reading, that's funny you asked that. I was reading a note before we hopped on this with, uh, it was, you know, one of the analysts over at Bloomberg, their Bloomberg intelligence analyst, and his estimate was he thinks they'll hit 10 million. I'm pretty sure he said easily. Easily. Um, 
that's what he said. Um, I, I'm more comfortable saying it will it will beat trolls. It'll have more than six million after you know, call it a month. So six, so six million. So you're talking about at, at least 180 million in in dollars. Yep. And the Bloomberg analyst was saying ten. So call it 300 million dollars. Yep. Do you think they can? Where are you at? On, where are you at on that? I'm comfortable in that range. I think, I think the way you got to look at it is similar to, you know, they got 60 million subs today. This is launching in a month. Can they penetrate over 10%? I think they probably can. Um, I think it was projected that 80 million, they would hit $80 million in, in the opening weekend in North America. Um, wow. So, that's a lot of millions, right? But but obviously, if you're a household of four, um, if you go to the theater, you're paying for four tickets. If you're a household, you're you're just paying for one. So, I, I think if it'll be really interesting if they actually hit the ten million or more, because at that point, it, it makes it a no-brainer to do the same for a couple of other films as we get back to uh, back to normal or new normal in movie theaters. So I think that's a, the more interesting question to me is whether it's, it, it justifies like Black Widow going this route and, and Soul, a Pixar movie that has a lot of buzz as well. But yeah, I think, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes over 10 million, to be honest. Um, so we'll see. Well, that'd be impressive. Let's, well, we'll we'll come back in ninety days and we'll talk about it again. We'll see how our predictions did. Awesome. <laughs> but, all right, Francisco. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be back soon with more.